and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our Think Tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Oriana Schuyler-Mastro, who's a non-resident senior fellow with us at AEI, where she focuses on the Chinese military, security policy in Asia-Pacific, and rising power challenges to the international order. She's also a fellow at the Freeman Institute for International Studies at Stanford University and concurrently serves in the U.S. Air Force Reserve as a strategic planner at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. She was previously an assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown School of Foreign Service and a fellow in the Asia-Pacific Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Her latest book, The Cost of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime, was published in 2019. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Oriana. Yeah, thank you for having me. We're very lucky to have Oriana associated with AEI. She's one of the great scholars uh, in our institution, Phoebe. And in your introduction, I noticed that the title that that you you gave her for her role in the United States Air Force was strategic planner. But when I first met Oriana, her title was a rank, like colonel or major. Uh, what uh, Oriana? Are you still a colonel? <laughs> Uh, uh, no, so I'm a major, so that's a couple uh, rungs below colonel. Okay, sorry, uh, I think sorry when about you that. First, yeah, well, I, I love the promotion, uh, yeah. but yeah, so I'm a major, that is my rank. The strategic planner is just my current job, so about every two years or so, I try to, to switch it up and, and do something different in the Air Force, and so now I'm working more in the plan shop there at, at Indo-PACOM, though obviously everything we talked about here today, I'm speaking to you in my civilian capacity. Yes, and but in your in your academic capacity, that's kind of a typical AI thing. But you have this other capacity in, as a reserve officer in the Air Force. Could you just tell our listeners how that happened? How did you become uh, a major in the United States Air Force? Oh man, it's a completely random story. Um, I was a first, I think it was a first year PhD at Princeton, um, and I got invited to give uh, a talk at the Naval War College. And no one had ever like invited me to do anything before, right? So this was a huge deal. But they said, oh, you know, we're doing this annual conference on the Chinese military, you should just come. And I definitely wanted to come. I had no money. So I like drove myself to Rhode Island and stayed in this like $30 a night uh, hotel. And in the happy hour before the conference, I was talking to people. And you have to understand, you know, at this point, I had never met anyone in the military before. So my, my knowledge is, is relatively limited. Aren't you from sort of a way. liberal, squishy family in Chicago? Isn't that where you started out, or a musical family or something like that? Right, right, yeah. So I'm from, you know, more of a family of, of Vietnam War protesters than, than, than pro-military forces, we'll say. I actually, after I joined the military, I didn't tell my parents for about eight months, um, if that tells you anything. So I grew up in Chicago, didn't know a lot of military. I went to Stanford undergrad. Um, they didn't have an ROTC there at Stanford at the time um, because of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So in general, I, you know, I didn't know a lot of people in the service. And so I'm having a conversation with an older gentleman, at, you know, over beers. And he was like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I just finished a summer internship at Rand Corporation. And they said, you should probably work more closely with the military. So I said, oh, I'd love to get an opportunity to work more closely with the military. And he said, well, and I said, maybe at, you know, PACOM, at that time it was Pacific Command. Now it's called Indo-Pacific Command. And he said, well, I'm deputy commander at Pacific Command. Uh, yeah, you should come out and do an internship 
and you should also thinking about joining the Air Force. And I said, well, you know, I'm not 18. You know, I didn't really understand how it works. I was like, I don't really have anything to offer the military. I'm not, you know, particularly tough. Um, and, uh, it, but I was really interested in that internship, right? So I didn't want to completely tell him no. Uh, so he said, you know, just, just talk to this colonel of mine in person. Just give it some thought. So I did that. Um, and I realized, you know, I thought I'm never going to do this. And the reason I thought I wasn't going to do this is a few things. I mean, the first one was, this was, you know, the height, this is right at, you know, this is right after 9-11. And of course, there's a lot of people, better people than me that are like, oh, I'm so patriotic, I want to go serve. I, you know, honestly, I, I did feel that way, but I was also afraid of dying. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get deployed and I'm going to die. Uh, but then I thought, well, if you're dead, you have no regrets. So I kind of ruled that out as a consideration. And then I thought, I'm not going to be good at this because everything I do is usually very individualistic. You know, like a lot of academics, the reading, writing, you know, I played piano, a one-person show, all the sports I did, a one-person show. But then I thought, well, I'll probably be a better person for it if I, if I do learn how to work better with other people. And then the last thing was I didn't really think I had anything to contribute. So this general set me up with this internship over the summer, and it turns out, like, speaking Chinese and knowing a lot about the Chinese military is very useful to the U.S. military, but I had no idea at the time. So once, once I discovered that, and, you know, I... I you know, this is kind of a bad word in some circles, but I did feel, you know, profoundly patriotic. I had spent enough of my time. Not a bad word around you know. here. Not a bad word. Yeah, well, I, you, know, you know, I never, you know, you always have to know your audiences. But, you know, for me, I'd spent enough time overseas. I felt like my patriotism was, you know, informed patriotism. You know, like I knew what it was like to be a, a young woman in a lot of the rest of the world. And it was, it was not great. Um, and I was happy and lucky to be born in the United States. And and work my way up through, at least in my experience, largely a meritocracy. And, and so I wanted to give back to my country. So I thought, okay, you know, there's nothing about me that suggests this is a good fit, but I, I, I want to serve my country. I'll do my four years and then I'll be done. So I, you know, I joined in the middle of my PhD at Princeton and just completely unexpectedly, I just love everything about it. I love, I love the sense of purpose. I love like that my work I feel like it actually means something that I'm actually contributing to my country. I love working with people, you know, from all different backgrounds than my own. You know, I sort of half joke, like I never really had met a Republican before. So I joined the military. Uh, I'd never been, had never been outside of a major city, you know, in the United States until the Air Force sent me to Alabama or Texas. And so, uh, so in some cases it has, it has been challenging on a personal level, but, but in a good way. And, and I hope and I think, um, you know, based on my military record, it seems like like I've made a difference and I've I've contributed. So this December it will have been 12 years. Uh, and wow. I've been you know, staying in uh, as long as I can be of service. Well, thank you for sure. Yeah. Bibi? Great. Well, uh, I want to start out by digging into Taiwan a little bit, um, which has been making lots of headlines recently, and I know you've talked to a lot of media about this as well. Um, but kind of as these tensions escalate and as it seems to get more likely day by day that there's going to be some kind of Chinese aggression towards Taiwan, I wanted to ask kind of first, what do you make of Biden's uh, pledge to defend Taiwan that was then kind of walked back by his comm shop last week? And just how should the Biden administration be prepared to respond um, in the event of Chinese aggression there? So I think that they're working kind of on an outdated premise 
the Biden administration, mm -hmm. that as long as the U.S. commitment to defend Taiwan is credible, then we can deter China from attacking. But this is not the China of the 1990s, right, where just a little show of U.S. force and they think, like, you know, they cower in the face of the, mighty, the mightiest military in the world and they say, okay, we don't want to fight the United States, so we're, we're not going to push Taiwan around. They spent the past 25 years building the exact weapons they need, the exact capabilities they need to counter the United States. And, and now they can. And so when I talk to the Chinese military, Chinese government officials, the main question is not, will the U.S. intervene? They actually assume U.S. military intervention. Hmm. Like any good plan or you assume the worst case, right? Mm -hmm. Now they ask themselves, can they still win? Even if the United States does have the will to, to intervene. So from my perspective, I don't think we need a change in policy. You know, I think we need a change in posture. But Taiwan, what China is looking at is whether the United States can defend Taiwan. And, and, you know, less so whether or not we actually, you know, will. So I think a lot of this just really increases tensions um, and doesn't have a significant operational benefit. And that's why I'm not, you know, particularly in favor of all this, like, should it be strategic clarity? Should we be clear about our commitment? Um, I think it causes more problems than it's worth. So you use the term posture. Another term might be capability. And and so right. look, what is the what is the weakest aspect of our capability? Or, or take us through the American or, or uh, uh, Western capability in uh, deterring or responding to aggression in Taiwan? So, Robert, the reason I use those different terms is that the United States is actually extremely capable, right? We are, are the U.S. military is much more capable than the Chinese military, but that doesn't matter because of posture. So posture is, you know, the forces that we have actually have available to dedicate to this contingency and the forces we have available in particular in the region. And so China can't, you know, if we look at just force on force, you know, China doesn't stand a chance against the US military. But the problem is that we are really far away. And it takes us a really long time to get all that capability together. And actually, probably China will have already taken Taiwan by the time we try to get that capability together. So that's sort of the first problem. Mm -hmm. The second problem is in the region, China has this geographic advantage. I'll give you one example. Because we're so much better than the Chinese, a lot of you know, the simulations show that in dogfights, right, air-to-air -air combat, we would shoot down 13 aircraft for every one aircraft they shoot down of, air, of ours. So you look at those odds and you think, oh, that's pretty good. But if you're Chinese, what do you, what do you think? You say, let's just not let their planes get in the air. Mm -hmm. So the United States has one air base in the vicinity of Taiwan. China has 39. And all China has to do, which it's perfectly capable of doing, is uh, you know, bombing the runway. So we can't get up in the air. So th there's a lot of these issues in which we have very few places in the region from which we can operate that are close to Taiwan that are in the threat ring of China. China has the most advanced cruise and ballistic missile program in the world, so they can basically just rain missiles down on these bases and then we can no longer use them. And then we're trying to fight a war, you know, from much farther out, and that just leads to more vulnerability. So the farther you fight out, the more you rely on what we call enablers. So things like, you know, you need air-to-air -air refueling if your aircraft is going longer distances, but tankers can't defend themselves, right? So then, you know, that's a vulnerability. 
Chinese just have to, you know, attack the tanker. So then we need fighters to protect the tanker. Same, we rely more on our space assets when we're projecting power farther and farther for command and control, communications, you know, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and, and you know, China just has to, you know, dazzle one of our satellites and then we can no longer project power. So we become more vulnerable because we're projecting power from farther away. Has and that's the, why we really, yeah. yeah I, you, that was great. I mean, that really, that explained the difference between posture and capability. I was, uh, what I want to know, uh, the next question would be, has our posture Given all the attention that this has gotten, the National Defense Strategy document shifted toward China, lots of AEI scholars, including yourself, have been calling for a shift in focus toward China. Has there been progress in that? Or is our posture better than it was five years ago or 10 years ago? I think the short answer is no. I would say, well, let me just say that's controversial because there have been a few changes, right? We have like 1,200 Marines in Darwin now. Like, great. First of all, Australia is still too far. It, it doesn't really help us in the Taiwan contingency. And also, that's not a huge change in posture. Like, what we really need are, are many more bases in many more places. We need more freedoms to use the assets we have in our current bases. So I'll just give you an example. Like, the United States does not have the technically, technically, the right to use our assets in South Korea for any contingency that doesn't involve North Korea. Technically, you know, we're, we have restrictions on how we can use our capabilities at bases in other places. You know, President Trump's position on that was kind of like, well, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But most presidents, you know, respect the agreements they've made with their allies and partners. So it's like we need more places. We need more flexibility out of where we're operating. And all of this requires a lot of diplomacy. So when the Biden administration says they want to lead with diplomacy, you know, I'm all for that. To me, that, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't have a strong military position, because I think the military largely relies on diplomacy to gain access. I, I just wish that that was more of a focus of our diplomatic efforts. And I think things like AUKUS are a great step in the right direction, but we need much, much more of that. I, I want to just talk about the, the neighboring nations, uh, Japan, Australia, South Korea. Uh, are they as concerned about China's uh, intentions in Taiwan as as you are or as we are? What's their, what's their mood toward China? So I think what's interesting is less what their mood towards China is and what their mood towards us is. Because what I, so I just came back from 14 months in Australia. And what I heard a lot was not that they didn't think China would ever attack Taiwan, but whether or not the United States wanted to make that a major war, they kind of felt like it was like a U.S. choice. Like this was going to be a war of luxury that the United States was going to like bring all these other countries into, and they didn't want any part of it. And so that was the position of our allies and partners for a long time. And I'm the first to admit that I'm very shocked with some of the what seems to be a change in mood in Canberra and in Tokyo because the years and years that I've been doing this, it's always been kind of like, you know, leave, you know, if you want to go have your great power competition with China, great, but leave us out. Um, of course, they would like us to be available to defend them if China ever attacks them, but they kind of see Taiwan as a separate issue. I think states more and more have seen Taiwan as linked to how China acts in the world and how China treats them. And so, you know, if you look back at SAD, when the United States wanted to place a missile defense system in South Korea because of the North Korea threat. You know, the Chinese didn't like it. And so they really punished the South Koreans for it with like a lot of economic punishments. 
And at that time, I think a lot of countries were like, okay, what did we learn? Don't, don't upset China. But in the intervening years, China is so easily upset, right? Like, I feel like there, you know, you, there's, there's no situation under which you're not going to say or do something to upset the Chinese government. And so now countries around the world are thinking, okay, we can't prevent China from kind of attacking us with this type of coercion or even overt aggression. So how do we build resiliency? And, you know, the first answer is the United States. And so I don't think they see the same threat the United States does. A lot of these countries probably, if they chose to, would never fight a war with China. Um, but the, the problem is that the more power China has, the more they use that power to ends that are not favorable to many countries, at least to the United States and its allies. And so at least one Australian, they said it, I think, in a way that really made sense to me, which was, you don't always agree with the United States, but we can all agree it's better if the United States wins. But I think that's where the region is right now. And what about Taiwan? Is that are they a um, is that a country uh, that will fight for itself? And uh, are they a, a a good ally for the United States? So it depends what you mean by good ally. In that you know our alliances are very asymmetric. Um, you know the United States has a vision of itself in a world, a vision that that I agree with. One of the main reasons that I am in the U.S. military is I believe that the U.S. military is a force for good and is there to protect those that cannot protect themselves. I, I don't like to think that, you know, the United States is just, you know, running around protecting, you know, very narrow interests. It is about a vision of global stability and security and prosperity that we're trying to promote. And in many cases, we're the only thing standing in the way of, of more nefarious actors undermining that approach. So, if the question is kind of does Taiwan, you know, is, is this a reciprocal relationship? You know, Taiwan doesn't really give the United States anything back in terms of defense. That it really is one way that will defend Taiwan. When it comes to whether they'll defend themselves, I mean, honestly, I have no idea. I've heard so you know I follow this very closely, and I see empirics that suggest both, right? Um, and, and then I also hear, you know, people say, like, when it comes to the defense that, you know, it's hard to predict until something actually happens, how people are going to respond. In general, it's very hard to convince people to run towards bullets instead of away from them. This is something that the U.S. military is exceptional at. Like, you know, I told you that story of how I joined, you know, when I joined, I was like, oh, I don't know. What if I'm deployed? You know, after three months of boot camp, I was like, when can I be deployed? Like, send me somewhere to fight. I knew they were indoctrinating me, and it still worked uh, extremely well. So, so we're very good at it, uh, you know, and that's one way that I think we can help Taiwan and, and help train their militaries. Um, but the question, I think, for the American people is, if, if the people of Taiwan have a sense of hopelessness, and so they, they don't put up a huge fight, you know, should that really impact how we respond to China? I mean, my view is kind of, no, this is about a broader issue. Than, than just the defense of Taiwan. How would you make the case to just any average American about why, very simply, why we need to defend Taiwan, why the loss of Taiwan to China would impact them via America's role in the world? Well, I think the first thing is that the average American doesn't understand how great our lives are because the United States is in charge, right? That the United States in the international system gets to largely shape and determine the rules of engagement, the agenda of what states do, 
that does everything from creating a favorable environment to our businesses to protecting U.S. citizens when they travel. You know, when China was upset about um, uh, the arrest of one of their main Huawei executives, they didn't falsely imprison Americans. Right? They falsely imprisoned Canadians because we are largely protected where we go. And we are largely free from foreign dictation, which is, I think, the main definition of national security, that we get to determine our policies domestically and internationally without great fear of retribution from other nations. The thing is that whenever China has the power to do anything, they will exploit it. And Taiwan right now takes up a lot of their attention, a lot of their focus, a lot of their capabilities. Once they have Taiwan, then they, they are free in many cases to engage in broader coercion against other countries. So the people will say Taiwan, for example, is home for the most advanced, the majority of the most advanced semiconductors, which for a lot of people, you're like, well, what does that mean? Right now, if anyone has tried to get a rental car since, since COVID happened, it's like thousands of dollars to get rental cars because of supply shortages, partially in semiconductors, right? Everything we use has semiconductors in it. If China has Taiwan, that geographic problem I mentioned, in which they can project power more efficiently than, uh, than the United States, that grows exponentially. Because now they not only use Taiwan as a place to project power from, but they also have all US military and equipment. Right? This is something no one thinks about. Like once they take Taiwan, all that great equipment we've been selling Taiwan, for years and years and years, now the Chinese have access to it. One of their major weaknesses is the engines in their fighter aircraft. Like how great would it be just to have US fighters um, available to, to reverse engineer? So once they have Taiwan, in, people will say, of course, that if we can't defend Taiwan, our alliances go away. The US role in Asia as a, as a leader in Asia dissipates. And that means our global role is over because Asia is now the most important region of the world, economically, politically, diplomatically, militarily. So if China dominates there, all, all we're then doing is we're on the defensive to try to protect our interests as much as possible in the rest of the world. And for China, they want countries to do certain things, but it's not just countries. They have rules of like how companies can act, universities, individuals. Like imagine a situation in which China gets to determine whether or not I get tenure at my university, right? Because they're in such a power position that they'll strong arm a university like Stanford until they get their way. Like that is, that is the future of a China that doesn't have to worry about Taiwan anymore. That's the dominant country in Asia and that the United States is, is on the back foot. It's one in which, you know, not that our, our safety is threatened when we're traveling, our livelihoods are threatened, you know, if, if they, well, they would free, you know, if they don't like something that you have said or you have done that they just decide to freeze all your, your global bank accounts or things like that. I mean, these are the types of tools that they will have at their disposal. And they have shown to date that they're not afraid to use them once they have them. You know, you're a military expert. Uh, and uh, so how will China, how will it happen? What, what, what devices will they use? What armor will they use if, if they were to decide if we were to what what will it will it be ships coming across the South China Sea? Will it be airplanes? Will it be drones? How does a country like China, you know, invade Taiwan? So I think a lot of people focus on this issue, focus on like gray zone psychological warfare type of stuff, because yeah. those are China's preferred peacetime tactics of um, like, okay, well, maybe it's a lot of cyber or things like that, but cyber does not hold territory. 
And so, you know, while I think the psychological warfare, the legal warfare and cyber attacks, all of that is absolutely going to be a part of the broader campaign, I don't think that Taiwan is going to give up unless there's boots on the ground. So I really think it, it comes down to this amphibious assault. And this is largely ships carrying large masses of, of Chinese military across the strait. Now, they might, I think they are likely to use also maritime militia ships because they have thousands and thousands of thousands of those. Um, and so even if the United States is in the business of targeting and sinking Chinese ships, we'll run out of munitions before you know, we, we get through to any of them. So it's very useful to have you know, those thousands of uh, maritime militia ships as well, just sort of carrying people across. And there's probably going to be an airlift component too, in which people are being dropped from the air. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a full-on invasion. And of course, you need the air forces to partially provide protection for your surface fleet as they make the trek across. And, you know, the distance, so the farthest distance across the Taiwan Strait is from like Washington, D.C. to Richmond, Virginia. And then there are parts of the strait that are narrower. So, you know, the Chinese military is writing Zaisi and say that it could be a matter of, you know, less than three days that they do well, this. And yeah, that's why the well, timing is so important. Yeah, one of the comparisons I like to make is the distance from, you know, the coast of England to France, which was, I think, 13 miles. I think it's right. 100 miles. Isn't it? A, it's a lot longer from China to Taiwan. I mean... It is not a, an easy amphibious invasion, Oriana. Or you're not saying that, are you? Or maybe you are. No, it's not easy, and it's going to be costly. Exactly. But when people say like, "Oh, China can't do this," they actually don't mean that China can't do it. But they, when you really get down to the details, they mean it'll be costly for China to do it. You know, they're going to lose a lot of ships or lose a lot of people. But what you have to ask yourself is, given the benefit to them of of, of taking Taiwan, are those costs outweighed by those benefits? And I think the answer to that is yes. I really believe that if, you know, China in the end loses their whole Navy, like, but they have Taiwan, that they'll think it was worth it, that they can build more ships. And this is part of the problem of deterring China. Oriana, I, I hate to remind you that, and I'm not making it, I don't want to be contentious here, and I'm definitely not being contentious because this is a terrific conversation, but I remember being with you three years ago, and you said the Chinese are unlikely, they don't like paying a price. Yeah. Have that, has that changed? Is Are they now much more ruthless and willing to make big sacrifices uh, for the things they want? Yes. So if you had, and I don't know if we had this exact conversation, but if three years ago you had asked me what's the likelihood that China would attack Taiwan, I would have put it at 0%. And now I put it around 60. Hmm. And that's because of two things. Two things have happened. The first is that the Chinese are now capable, much more capable of doing this operation than they were three years ago. So that the costs have actually decreased significantly in terms of the military operation. The second thing is when people talk about the costs, for the most part, they're not talking about just the military costs of taking Taiwan. They're talking about the aftermath, right? How are states going to respond? What are going to be the economic, political costs that countries, you know, put on China for, for using force? And I think we engage in wishful thinking when, you know, we say, well, everyone's going to, you know, side with the United States and countries are going to cut off diplomatic and economic ties with China indefinitely because they use force against Taiwan. I mean, it has been very hard to get countries to even condemn China on some pretty other, other egregious issues. 
in, in a way that that has an impact on Beijing, uh, I find it really hard to believe that they're basically going to risk their whole economic livelihood for the sake of Taiwan. Now, AUKUS, some statements out of Japan give me hope that they're changing their minds on this. But I think the Chinese basically believe they'd probably face maybe three to five years of tough economic sanctions, and then and then everything would kind of go back to the way it was before. And again, I don't think those costs are high enough, given the fact that Taiwan is now in reach. Is the Chinese Communist Party, uh, would it have a unified Chinese people in, a, in an invasion of Taiwan? Yeah, 100%. This is, I think, and I'm so glad you asked this because I feel like this is this is a big like mis, uh, maybe mere imaging or a simplification of autocratic regimes that people have this view that the Chinese Communist Party like largely does not enjoy the support of the Chinese people, uh, and of course the Chinese people can be unhappy about certain aspects, especially there are pockets of totalitarianism in China, right in Xinjiang, for example, or what's happened in Hong Kong or Tibet. But for a large part of the Chinese people, like they're very supportive of what the Communist Party has done, which is uh, not only the economic growth, but has, uh, you know, protected them from what has been largely like foreign interference, foreign aggression, nefarious foreign influences in their country. And they feel probably more strongly about Taiwan than the government does. I mean, I believe that if China were a democracy, this would, we would be even in greater trouble than we are today. Because at least Xi Jinping is trying to think kind of rationally and cautiously, and he can sort of censor to a degree or control to a degree the nationalism coming out of China. Um, but he would, you know, I talked to my friends in China, just like the average Chinese person, and I bring up costs like you did, you know, immediately it's like, we, costs don't even matter. You know, like we will do it, you know, this is, this is beyond cost for us. This is, you know, Taiwan. So I think they would have the, the Communist Party would have the full support. And this is what makes it so tempting. Uh, you know, if you can do it, and you can do it at an accessible cost. And then if you're Xi Jinping, and you get to be the man that brought Taiwan back, like, you know, you might even be greater than Mao, um, uh, you know, when he retires. So that's what I think is very tempting for him. Uh, last question for me, and then Phoebe, you, you could, may have one more. <laughs> uh, We've been reading in the newspapers a lot in the United States in the last six to ten weeks about uh, some economic difficulties in China. Uh, uh, COVID has been problematic. American companies are withdraw are pulling back. The, these big real estate firms don't have the money to pay their debts. Is 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 something happening with China's economy that might undermine the Chinese people's support for the regime? So there's a few things here about the economics of, and you're right, I'm, I'm a military expert, but luckily, especially at AEI, we have a lot of econ experts that I often ask all my stupid questions of, like Derek Scissors. You're saying um, question, so, stupid questions. That's okay. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I, I just don't, I, there's a lot of basics that I don't understand. And so I'll be like, wait, everyone's saying this thing, and it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, am I right? And so, so there's two things about the economic side. I mean, the first is that the the Communist Party gets their legitimacy now from China's role in the world, which is partially based on economics, but 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 not all economics. It's not like before that it was just like the growth rate was so important. Um, and so as long as Xi Jinping garners the respect that the Chinese people think that they deserve on the international stage, they're they're very supportive of that. 
And the second thing is, you know, for the past 25 years, China has been competing with the United States from a far weaker resource position. You know, we kind of forget, you know, that, that I think it was like they were 3% of GDP in the mid-1990s. Even on the military side, it was until very recently that they couldn't, you know, sail beyond visual range of their coast. And so even though that they were in a weaker position than us, they have still managed to create a lot of headaches and be very competitive for global influence. So if all these issues that you've laid out, which is beyond my capabilities to assess exactly you know, how dire they are, but based on other economic predictions, if they have a stagnant GDP, for example, and we're assuming that the rest of the world doesn't, that somehow you know, the United States continues to grow even as, as China is suffering because of domestic issues. Even so, they're still going to have the second largest economy in the world. They're still going to be able to compete globally uh, with the United States. And we sometimes forget it's not only how much money you have, but how you use it. So, you know, Afghanistan costs 10 Belt and Road Initiatives. So they don't, they don't necessarily have to continue to grow at the same rate to be a great power competitor with the United States you know, at least for my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I said I had one last, but I do have one more. Let's go back to the full-on amphibious invasion, which is what you described is a possibility and is the way they would have to do it. Um, is there some military piece of hardware uh, that the Taiwanese should be acquiring or that we should be providing or that the neighboring nations should be acquiring and, and sending to Taiwan that that they should have to... to defeat the full-on amphibious invasion? And if, if there is, are they, are they doing it? Are they preparing? Well, the first thing that we absolutely need are land-based intermediate-range ballistic missiles in the second island chain. So that might be a way too of a specific answer for what you're looking for. Yeah. But, basic, but basically, China, I don't think, is very sensitive to costs in this Taiwan scenario, but they don't want to lose. So if you make it so they can't physically get across the strait, right? Like if it's just missiles raining down in the strait and it's just very difficult for them to get across, then I think they might think about it twice. And we need a cost-effective strategy, right? And, and missiles are much cheaper. Now, the United States, we just got out of the INF Treaty under President Trump. So now we can start building these types of missiles, but we don't even have them yet. And then we have to convince countries to host them. So that's, you know, so it's going to take a while. But that's the type of idea is, you know, doing things that make it more difficult. So none of these sort of exquisite prestige type of weapons that Taiwan government, you know, always wants, like it really comes down to just like mining, you know, making it just, just slowing them down. No one expects that Taiwan can defeat China. No one expects that. The question is, they just have to last like a week and a half. Yep. If they can just last like a week and a half to two weeks, then we've got a shot. Um, and so those are the types of systems that, that you need is just, you know, hardening everything and putting up really strict defenses so that no matter the will that the Chinese have to make it across that, you know, they, they just like, like you said, with Normandy, it's going to take them time to sort of hack their way through and hope by the time they get through, we'll already be there. Yep. Phoebe, any more? Yeah, last one. Um, So as we're recording this podcast, President Biden is at a climate summit in Scotland uh, discussing multilateral approaches to limiting carbon emissions. China is not there, even though it is not only the largest emitter, but four times larger than the second country on the list. Uh, So, Oriana, I was curious to ask you 
Um, is it kind of naive to be having these talks without China at the table? And in your experience, especially kind of your book, which talks about the strategy of these kinds of negotiations, how much should the climate issue factor into our relationship with China? Well, thank you for that question, Phoebe, and for bringing out my book, The Cost of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in War Times, if people are interested in military history and how, how states incorporate diplomacy into military strategies, I, I hope they'll, they'll take a look. Um, so I think it's important for us to have these kinds of discussions without China. And I actually, I, I'm very happy that we went ahead without China because historically, for a lot of the past presidencies, we think about competition and cooperation as these separate things, right? And we say, all right, well, but there's areas in which we can cooperate with China. There's these cooperative elements. But the Chinese like pocket those, okay? So we go to the Chinese and we're like, oh, can you help us with climate change? And they're like, sure, but we're doing you a favor. Mm -hmm. And they pocket those and then they use them to gain advantages in other strategic areas, which I am not a fan of. Mm -hmm. And so I always think it's important to say to the Chinese to be conditional about it. And especially now, like I would go to China and I would say, and I'm not suggesting maybe the Biden administration is doing this. I'm, I'm not involved in the direct negotiations, but to go to the Chinese and say like, you guys are being jerks and nobody likes you. And we will give you the opportunity to do this, you know, positive image thing with us of, you know, whether it's climate change or it's, you know, international health issues, whatever it is, we will give you the opportunity to cooperate with us. Like we are doing you a favor that you get to be next to us on the world stage on this issue. Like that's how I think we should be presenting it. And if we're presenting it that way and the Chinese say, oh, we're not interested, you know, I think the pressure, China really cares about the world thinks of them. And I think the international pressure to be involved and the domestic pressure, because the Chinese people are really upset about, um, uh, about environmental degradation at home, that will be enough. They have incentive enough for themselves to come to the table. We don't want to make them feel like they're doing it for us. Um, and so I think this is the right strategy. We just have to give the Chinese time to, to come around. Okay. This has been a great conversation. Oriana, it's great to hear your voice and to speak with you. And thank you for all you do for AI and, and for your scholarship and your service to the country. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great, really great conversation. And hopefully through all this work together, we can uh, come up with some ideas to resolve some of these issues in, in the years to come. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.